I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Love Letters is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Paul is a publicist and writer in Boston in his early 60s. He freely admits he steals some of his best romantic lines and gestures from the movies. Do you remember the proposal just because people love proposal stories? What was the line that I used? When most men consider marriage, they think, can I live with this person for the rest of my life? And I said, with you, I'm asking myself, can I live without you? And the answer is no, I cannot. And I can't remember where I grabbed that from, but it was a real, I love the line. It's a, it's a good line and I, and it's whatever, it's yours now. From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is Love Letters. I'm Meredith Goldstein. So this season of the podcast has been one of growth, evolution, and many different lessons. We've talked to teenagers who turned epic love stories into poetry, longtime friends and couples who remained together forever despite great change, single people who learned to draw boundaries and then figured out what they really want in new partners. I'd like to think that I've matured a lot this season just by interviewing and listening. Today, on our last official episode of season four— we have a story I love from a listener named Paul. Paul shared with us some important lessons about caring for a loved one and caring for yourself, too. His story speaks to the importance of independence in a relationship for both parties. The first thing to know about Paul is that he is one of the rare cases I know of of someone meeting a partner when they're really not looking. I had been married prior to meeting my wife and was not looking at all. In fact, I had signed off. Paul is in his late 20s when this story begins. He doesn't feel at all like dating. He and his ex had just lost a baby. The tragedy is too much for the young couple to handle. They split, and Paul decides he's going to begin, by himself, the process of adopting a child from China. He is in no way seeking out a partner to share the experience. And lo and behold, I was invited to a party by a colleague. And even though he said, we have, I have someone who my wife would like you to meet, I said, oh, well, fine, I'll just be nice and courteous about it, but there's no future. Uh, 
I met this this woman who actually happened to be from China, interestingly enough, and I was smitten right away. All these feelings that I had built up over the, you know, whatever, a couple of years forming my opinion of future relationships or lack thereof, I decided to forego. What do you remember about your first talks with her? She talked a lot about her family. She was, uh, you know, emigrated here from Shanghai. And she told me of her mother and two brothers. And she had a career over in China and uh, had come over here to go to school. And, and because I was sort of in that process of adopting a little girl from China, I was a little bit immersed in that uh, on my own. It was sort of an education for me, hearing more firsthand knowledge of the country and, and the culture. Who asked you out first? Oh, I did. I asked her out. How'd you do it? I said, would you like to see me again? I would like to see you. It was in the fall, so I think we we planned an afternoon just kind of tooling around Boston. I actually brought a football because she had, she had asked questions about football because she re- was raised in the other football. We went into the commons and tossed it around, and, and then we'd go and had, had a drink and a little snack. And yeah, it was very, very casual, very casual. Even though it's, I had this buildup of a couple of years of not being interested in relationships, I, I knew I kind of turned the corner <laughs> after meeting her. I mean, she was quite, quite something. Once Paul turns that corner, there's no going back. Their relationship becomes more and more serious. They talk about having a family. They get married at Boston City Hall in 1990, when they're in their 30s. Then they both get their shared wish, a child. I've always been nuts about kids. Still am. Uh, We both wanted children. Now, she came from a culture where it's usually the one child, especially if it's a male. And as it turned out, that's really all we could have um, because of my inadequacies, put it that way. And, And so we had a boy. Their son took on the best parts of his and his wife's personalities, Paul says. One thing his wife insisted on was music lessons. She just wanted the appreciation of music and the discipline and, and all of that. When he was 12, and he was really starting to struggle with the violin because we, we got him to go to Saturday morning lessons, which he hated. Of course he, of course he did. You know, it's Saturday morning, you want to sleep in. And, and so when he was sixth or seventh grade, he started to re- rebel against the lessons and, and the arguments, which were a weekly ritual with he and my wife, became almost nightly as she would want him to practice. I think it was seventh grade, I decided out of a show of solidarity, I started taking cello lessons. And I would go off to my cello lesson, he would go to his violin lesson, and we'd meet afterwards and go have breakfast. By 2007, Paul and his wife have been happily married for 17 years. He's working as a publicist in healthcare. She's a corporate accountant. Their son is about 14 years old. Paul and his wife begin noticing, out of the blue, that her lower legs are shaking. Didn't think much of it. I I would always chalk these things up to fatigue or stress or something like that, Uh, more man-made as opposed to something medically out of balance. But nonetheless, we did go and get it checked out, and and she was diagnosed with Parkinson's. It came as a shock, obviously, because I think uh, at least I knew the image that I had of this illness was Michael Fox who was probably the most, and still is, the more the most prominent person with that illness. And, I mean, he, he was young, and, and it seemed to really ravage him quite quickly. And what I'd seen on TV with his movements and his mannerisms, I mean, I was uh, 
quite upset over this diagnosis because that's that's the image that I had in my mind. We went to the doctor's appointment, which was in the morning. She went back to work. <laughs> of course, I was working from home at the time. And of course, I went back home and I, I couldn't work. She, she put in a, a whole day's worth of work. Back then, she was struggling, English being her second language. You know, understanding nuances and certainly medical terms were very challenging for her to understand. But nonetheless, she did understand that it was a, a progressive illness, one that there's no real certain timetable to how it, how it does uh, advance in, in, in people's bodies. Sometimes it's slow, sometimes it's much more aggressive, like a Michael Vox. I don't know if she was hopeful or just put it in that section in her, her, in her brain where it was manageable that day. You come at this from a different perspective because you had previously been married and gone through a great trauma. So you had seen how a, a marriage tested can, in fact, end. What were your questions as a person who might have been thinking, oh, I'm going to become a caregiver? Like, how much in that moment when you went home that day were you thinking this? How did you already know your life was going to be changed? You know, it's funny. I don't think I did at that time. I wanted to know how how far and how quickly and, and, and to what degree could something like this advance in, a very, in an otherwise healthy individual who did nothing wrong medically or physically or biologically in her life, and yet she's saddled with, with this illness. I think the caregiver thing came into play maybe a month or so, and I have a frame of reference of my work, and so I know a number, particularly in cancer, so I know a number of patients and their their families who are caregivers for a cancer patient. And so I knew of that role. And I always remember this, this one gentleman who actually was a, the son to his mother. She was a single mom and who ended up being her caregiver. And it was one of those things where, I, to this day, it's, it's how I approach this. He said, Paul, it's, you, you start this with love. And, and when you have that passion for a person, you just, you just do it. The Parkinson's diagnosis doesn't affect things that much at first. Paul eases into the role of caregiver, performing small tasks to help his wife settle into a new routine. And initially, for the first five years, it was just helping make sure to take the meds. And because and, there's a lot of meds in this illness, three or four d during the day. And you have to take them at different times and, and then make sure that we have the, uh, the appointments that we keep with the neurologists and, you know, all of those things. So that was, that was, I was more of an administrator than I was an emotional partner at that time because she didn't need that. Yeah, I mean, can you clarify? I know you mentioned to me that the first few years were not incredibly symptomatic in particular ways. They weren't. I mean, the, the meds do, I must say, this is a, a disease area where the med medicines do a very good job of masking those symptoms and, and treating you symptomatically. As long as she, she adhered to that, she was fine. It changed for us around the four or five year mark. She uh, started experiencing what they call frozen gait syndrome where you literally can't walk and you almost need someone to hang on to to help move you forward to get your rhythm back. It just, it comes on without warning. We were out publicly and she had this happen to her and I didn't know what it was, 
but I, I'm, I'm walking and all of a sudden I turn around and my wife is maybe five or six feet behind me and she, she really is kind of panicking. And so I go back and, and, and you know, she's shaking and, and so I said, let's start to walk a little slowly and, and that's all it really took. The other thing that happened was actually just a few years ago when we were back in China and that's when she first started to fall, to stumble, lose her balance and balance became an issue. During that week and a half that we were in Shanghai, she fell three times. And at first I thought, well, it's jet lag and she's weary and fatigued. And But then because it happened again, and in fact, it's it happened, um, it's ha- it continues to happen. The minute this relationship changed and, and even characterizing yourself as an administrator in those first few years, and I totally understand what you mean by that, like, how do you also keep the marriage a marriage, right? You're still hanging out and spending time together and doing stuff and watching. Like, how did you find normalcy amid these changes as they progressed? Well, I think we had what we had to our advantage. And, and you know, maybe a lot of couples go through this thing, don't have it. I mean, we had a number of years to live together without this. And so we had established that rapport and the rhythm of, of being together. I think we we were able to work around those challenges because of what we already had as as a couple. And we kept the marriage alive. Still, there are sacrifices, like the big fundraising dinners connected to Paul's work that he and his wife used to enjoy attending. My wife loves to go to these things. You know, she can get all dolled up and, you know, wear big kids' clothes. And and so we usually go there and there's the silent auction and the cocktails and the hors d'oeuvres. And then you sit down for dinner. And this on this one specific night, she was starting to get anxious because the medication was wearing off. Her, her legs were, were shaking and she just didn't want to stay there. She kind of clawed me in my arm. She grabbed me in the arm. She says, we need to go now without any explanation. And I said, what's wrong? No, this, the dinner's not over yet. And I, of course, I wanted to stay because it was, you know, it was there with colleagues who we were sitting at one of those tables for 10 other people. She said, no, I have to go. I'm not feeling well. We tried to go to subsequent dinners and subsequent activities, and the same thing started to happen. And it, it really, and that is, has kind of impacted our social. So we don't, I mean, if we go out, you know, it could be to, I mean, we'll go to a concert or a, a, something theatrical. Sometimes it, it works, sometimes it doesn't. And yet, Paul says, they figured out how not to be defined by his wife's condition. She has a medicine that, that works. She lives a fairly normal life. So we were doing those things that, you know, a, quote, normal couple would, would do, Meredith. And so the disease wasn't always uh, front and center and getting in the way of things. I should say here that when I did a call out at the start of the season for lessons that people learned at different ages, Paul wrote in to explain that his lesson was about how to keep showing up for someone, no matter what. He'd learned as a husband and a caregiver that presence means so much in a relationship. But as we talked, I also learned another lesson from him about how to show up. When we care for someone, it's possible to do too much and forget our own needs in the process. In Paul's case, one of those needs was watching as many Hugh Grant movies as possible. I'll explain when we come back. 
we're back. As his wife's disease progresses, one of the challenges for Paul is knowing when being helpful turns into something else, when it becomes annoying and controlling. Yes, his wife has Parkinson's, but she's still an independent person. You get your hand slapped when you, because I can be like that helicopter guy, where particularly in the later stages, as these things started to manifest themselves, I just assumed that, okay, the, the more that I do, and goodness gracious, I couldn't do enough, and at least in my mind. The more that I do, the better it is going to be for her physically because she's going to have the strength and, you know, doing the physical labor won't sap her strength and she'll be able, better able to handle her illness and live a um, healthy life. At the same time, I mean, my wife is it's funny. One of the things I tell my, my male friends is that I, I lucked out because I am not mechanically inclined at all, and nor do I have that gene in me. So I don't feel like I need to assert my maleness by fixing something. I'm happy to let others, I believe in the service industry, <laughs> my plumbers and my remodeler, they're my best friends and, and my wife. She's great at it. And I always tell her if she had it to do over again, she, she should have gone to MIT and gotten her engineering degree. And she loves to do it too. And so far be it for me to take something away from you that's, that you're passionate about. But I tried. I mean, you know, not not so much the mechanical stuff, but just things in general, cleaning and cooking. And I mean, I've always been the cook in the family, but she likes to cook her native dishes. And and I would argue about, oh, no, it's not, and I would always want to clean up and, you know, just, you know, take that independence away. And that's really what it was. I didn't fathom what this illness was already taking away from her. It must have been a learning experience to talk about that. One moment you're like, I want to do the dishes to help you. And the next moment you're like, wait, do I? Like, what kind of things did she tell you uh, about when to show up and how? It was just real simple. I can do this kind of messages to me. And I don't need your help. You know, I can do this. And I would I would prefer to do it by myself. You know, and, I, and I'm smart enough to listen. <laughs> and I did. Paul says figuring this out wasn't easy. You can probably tell. Just by nature, he's a really helpful guy. His instinct is always to do something. I mean, this is a man who took up an instrument just because his son needed to get more enthusiastic about lessons. So Paul really had to pause and reflect on this. He had to learn a new way of caregiving, especially since in his first marriage, it didn't work. There is a, I, want, I need to do better this time. I need to be stronger. I need to be more resilient. And, you know, we've... We, had our fair share of tragedies in our in the relationship in our marriage, but we we withstood those, and and part of that is because I reflect back. I don't want to go back and do that again. I want to be strong this time. I want to be different. You know, I, I'm I'm a better caregiver now because of the fact that I wasn't during that time. I, I learned what to do, and I'm still learning. I mean, I always question myself as a man anyhow, you know, what my motivations are, because I, I grew up in the, I'm sort of the tail end of that, the, the, the stoic, silent male, not involved. My father was like that. You know, I grew up in an era where men changed, and I wanted to be a part of that change. You know, what, what I le actually learned from my parents is they didn't have a partnership because my dad was, you know, strong, silent. And and so they, I looked at their relationship, and what they didn't have was a partnership, and that's what I wanted. 
when I got married. Actually, both times I wanted a partnership, and the first one didn't work out, but the second one has worked out wonderfully. And it's a different partnership now because of the the illness, but certainly still is a partnership. This take on masculinity and purpose, this is where the lesson on self-care comes into play. You might remember from the start of the episode that Paul admitted to borrowing his best lines from movies. But what movies exactly? Well, as Paul and his wife nurture their partnership and manage her illness, he has also fully embraced what he needs to be a good and happy person. And what he needs are feel-good romantic comedies, now more than ever. I want to talk about the movies. <laughs> so, so let's talk about this. So, you mentioned movies multiple times and and I and I hear you because if I the my number one thing that I miss right now is a movie theater. It's hurting my soul not to be able to go, but like can you sort of start by telling me your fascination with movies and your interest in in movies and what kind of movies you've always liked? At a, at a particular time in my life, I I was so enamored with movies, I thought I could become an actor. And and I'm paraphrasing David Sedaris here by saying I couldn't imagine how a lack of talent would not allow me to succeed. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was I was to acting what military music is to music. I think the first movie that I really started looking at seriously was Chinatown with Jack Nicholson, which I've now seen, oh gosh, it has to be over 50 times. Probably can quote the entire script for you if you, if you want. And then I just... I saw, I think it was Four Weddings and a Funeral, which is the movie that literally changed my whole idea around movies and made me what I call a crying guy for life. And so I just, I fell in love with these movies and I started looking more into them. And of course, that was the era where the chick flicks kind of were born or the rom-coms. The boyfriend or the husband was dragged begrudgingly off to the movies with his his wife or girlfriend. I didn't need that. <laughs> I didn't need that motivation. And it just seemed to be there was this rash of movies of this genre that started coming out. I was hooked when Love Actually came out. And I happened to like the, a lot of the, the romantic comedies seem to be British. And this, this guy, Richard Curtis, who was the director of Notting Hill and Four Weddings. Paul is much more of a rom-com connoisseur than I am. But there is one we both love. Wait, have we talked about whether or not you like About Time? Because... Oh, yeah. He, he did love, that, too. I love About Time. Yeah, I me too. I lose my mind crying with that movie. Yeah, yeah. It's one of my favorites. Oh me! Oh, of course. It's, it's a Richard Curtis film. Why yeah, wouldn't it? Why wouldn't it be? And it is a and it's a brilliant movie. I didn't, it's funny because I didn't. If you haven't seen it, about time is a time travel movie, but it's really about this man who uses that superpower to try to make every day beautiful. He uses time travel to fall in love over and over. He uses it to try to prevent the people he loves from getting hurt or sick. It's a weeper, and it has Rachel McAdams in it. So I'm in. If Paul had to choose one Richard Curtis movie that makes him feel better, one that brightens his day in moments of distress, it would be Notting Hill. It's just about a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. You know how it goes. Don't forget. I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy. 
to love her. I don't know, I just identify with these these male characters because they embody so much of who I am. You know, I'm not Harrison Ford. I'm Hugh Grant or I'm Colin Firth. Paul's favorite scene in Notting Hill, one that brings him to tears now, comes at the end. One of the, my favorite scenes is not even with, with Hugh Grant, but when they're going off to the hotel at the end when she's giving her final press conference and the guy who has the, the wife in the wheelchair... She's on the curb, and he goes out and gets her and brings her back in the car. I lose it every time that happens. I just, I burst into tears. I think that's so romantic, you know. Paul has taken the idea of rom-coms as self-care and is turning it into something bigger. He's creating a club of men. It's sort of like a book club, but they'll watch romantic movies. As part of his commitment to this, Paul has made an important design change in his house, one that Hugh Grant's character, Notting Hill, would be proud of. And so what I really liked about the fact that he had this blue door <laughs> in, in the movie, and I thought to myself, I'm going to paint a blue door and encourage other men to paint their doors blue as well. <laughs> this pandemic has been hard for Paul and his wife, he says. They're very strict about isolating and taking good care. Their son has left for California for grad school. Paul says that during this dark time, he's turned to his film library to get it all out. I've actually watched on purpose a couple of these movies, so it would help me induce the tears. I, so I think I think the fact that it, it they allow me to be immersed in the my emotional side it's a, a departure from the norm. So it is a little bit of a a getaway for me. I just think what appeals to me is that ability to tap into men's soul, if you will, you know, and it doesn't have, it's not the stereotype. There's a weird thing, though, even as a woman, I feel it like I have found during this pandemic time that, like, I'm not a big crier, but sometimes I will watch something to help me. It's like crying about the thing you're upset about is actually really hard, I think, sometimes for some people, but movies can help with that, too. I mean, if I really need a good cry, about something real in my life, I know what can I can watch to help me get there. And I wonder why that is. Yeah, in fact, I've actually, I'm sure a therapist would have a field day with this one, but I will, when I'm sitting waiting for my wife to come down from visiting her mom or something like that, I'm on YouTube looking at the most emotional endings in movies. I think nowadays, especially, I kind of need that. But at the same time, I want to be a little bit strong during this time. But I, you know, I, I feel that I, I may need these kind of... Uh, these kinds of cries and inducements to to be emotional right now. Yeah. Does your wife like rom-coms? Yeah. Oh, she yeah. Do- okay, good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, watch do- them, we watch them together. Yeah, she loves them. Does she have favorites? She likes all the ones I like. Uh, she likes uh, Notting Hill. <laughs> She's a big fan of About Time. You mentioned that. Okay. I'm wondering if you can sort of give some advice to people who, you know, we have this image of the perfect caretaker or caregiver who shows up and is smiling, and that is a piece of it, right? But there's also, I'm sure, a piece of it where there's disappointment and the threat of resentment and fear. If you have been asked to speak to people who are at an early stage of figuring out how to be this person, what would you tell them about how to approach the start of this process and what it will mean? It's a great question. I'm not sure I have a, have an answer. I always like to think that I would, and what I've done with, with my wife is be honest and as transparent as possible. But again, you run the risk of 
geez, I'm feeling left out or I'm feeling overworked. And in the back of my mind, is she going to take that to mean that I'm not into doing this anymore? And I've learned over the years that I, I can tell her when, oh God, you're working my last nerve. If you're frustrated, if you're angry, if you're you know, pissed off, you'd like her to do something different, if you'd like anybody to do something different in this type of relationship, it sounds simplistic, but you, you ask them to do it <laughs> and tell them why. Give them a good reason. I mean, you can't just expect them to do it without that. You do feel bad for yourself and you, you kind of go through a process of licking your wounds a little bit. You know, it shouldn't happen to me and people should feel sorry for me and I'm hurting. And But at the same time, I realize that there's somebody downstairs or in the other room who might need my help or need my attention and so for me to, I mean, that's a really selfish way to, to behave. And, and that's, that's one thing that I've learned. Paul also knows to remember that his wife cares for him, too. She is aware of that. And, and she, how, how are you feeling? And, you know, like when I, you know, I've had a couple of sessions with a therapist and she's asked me about what we talked about and how I'm feeling and, and uh, <clears throat> you know, making sure, I don't know, make sure, but I know I mean, I jokingly said that she's the one I want in a bar fight. That's her personality, you know, uh, just make, she knows that, I mean, I've been there for her and, and now I know she's there for me. There's just no question about that. I think now that she knows that this thing is, is affecting me, I mean, even like after lunch, she'll say, why don't you just go on the couch and close your eyes for 20 minutes, right? You know, something like that that she probably knows would make me feel a little better. So, you know, there's this just extra layer of nice that I that I see during this time. And I and I love that. I love that. I mean that's the kind of stuff that makes you makes you weak in the knees for a person. Thank you, Paul. I'm excited to see your blue door. <laughs> Thanks, Meredith. You'll be the first to see it. <laughs> Appreciate it. Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. Today's episode was produced by Scott Hellman. Ned Porter does our audio mixing, sound design, and mastering. Devin Smith and Jenna Serbo do our audience engagement. Love Letters illustrations by Ashanti Davis. Check them out on Love Letters Instagram. Special thanks to Brian McGrory and Linda Henry. Our music is from APM. Love Letters is also an advice column. Send me your questions about your own relationships and dating to loveletters at boston.com. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We're online at loveletters.show. And you're right, the 90s were a great time. Oh my God, yeah. While you were sleeping, uh, oh. um, uh, even even some very obscure ones, Jillian on her 37th birthday, which was filmed on Oh my gosh, Pocket, Michelle right? Pfeiffer. I'm, de- I'm deep in it, dipping into the vault here on these ones. You, uh, that's the vault I like. <laughs> that is good stuff. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.